It is my pleasure to welcome Gary Richmond to the platform this morning. He's our uh, lead-off batter for Month of the Family, Family First Aid. And if you notice in your uh, bulletins, you can take out your notes, but you're going to probably just be listening right in a few verses down. He's going to talk about a view from the zoo. Now, I got to tell you something. Uh, there's very few friends in my life that I can actually say this, that I use all three of the books that he wrote, and he's written 22, but three in particular, this one, A View from the Zoo, and a few more, there's two more like it, sequels, uh, that I actually use them in raising my kids, because I love to tell stories, but I am an amateur compared to this man in telling stories, and it was the basis for our family time stories when I put my kids to bed, especially with my son who had an active imagination. I tried to impersonate the Black Widow Spider and some of the things that he talks about here, but I'm not very good at it. But uh, Gary Richmond has been a friend of mine for over 30 years. Seven years, early on as a young man, he was a zookeeper at the L.A. Uh, County Zoo, City Zoo, and uh, he'll tell you what that means a little bit more. He was on staff at the Evangelical Free Church in Fullerton, California for 27 years, and at the time was the only single parent pastor in the nation. Um, for many of those years, and a ministry that reached hundreds of single parents. Um, for 32 years, he was Father Nature at Forest Home, and if anybody is in my era remembers that, that he would come up and do these Father Nature stories at Forest Home. I don't think they quite do it like that anymore, but that was a real legacy of family camps for years at Forest Home. But his biggest claim to fame is that he's been married 50 years to his sweetheart, Carol, the same, the same woman for 50 years, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and um, so it, without any further ado, I want you to welcome Gary Richmond, but I need you to understand something. You see, people here that were here last hour, I told you this would happen. They heard the stories from the first hour. I told them he's telling different stories the second hour, so I just want you to know you missed an unbelievable first hour, so you want to get part one and listen to it once it's up on the video because you'll hear all new stories this morning. Would you give a warm ABF welcome to my friend, Gary Richmond? Thank you, John. No, couldn't love John any more than I do, and he's like one of the people that's steady and uh, one of my most admired pastors of all time. Uh, when I was eight years old, an epidemic hit our community, the community of uh, Altadena, California. And it wasn't an epidemic of the flu, although we'll have one this year. It was an epidemic of black widow spiders. On a normal year in California, we have 50,000 spiders per acre. And uh, that's on a normal year. But this isn't going to be a normal year. This is, and we're already beginning it, this is going to be an El Nino year. And in an El Nino year, we get quite a bit more rain. Instead of the 14 inches that Los Angeles area gets <clears throat> on the average yearly, we're going to get, uh, well, I remember one El Nino year went to 32 inches. That's a lot of rain for Los Angeles, and it causes a lot of flooding. But another thing it causes is uh, the hydration of the plant life in the area. So what we'll see is greener hills than we've seen for years especially since there's been a drought for the last 14 years. Uh, but we're going to see green, beautiful green hills and a lot of lupin and a lot of uh, daisy and a lot of mustard. And, and we're gonna, it's just going to be incredible as far as nature's concerned. And the problem that comes with that extra greenery, uh, it, your first thought might go to forest fires. That's not my first thought, is that those, uh, that greenery is food for insects, and, and uh, insects that live on that greenery that's going to be growing all over the hills and every place is the, is the food supply for the insects, but insects are the food supply for the spiders who normally are at 50,000 per acre and will jump immediately from two to 400,000 spiders per acre. Now when you consider that amongst those spiders in California are two uh, that are of particular concern to us, or at least should be, is uh, one of them is uh, the brown recluse, the violin spider, uh, which can cause a great deal of pain and suffering, not so often death, 
but uh, they can cause ice cream scoop size uh, necrosis. Uh, that means wounds that go deep and look like somebody just took a scoop of your muscle and flesh out of you, and they can deform you, and uh, on a few occasions, death. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but the thing that you'll really get is a pickup on black widow spiders, uh, which are very territorial spiders. They only uh, will tolerate a black widow with, uh, within so many feet of their own web, and then they'll go to kill it if they can. So they don't like anything that they feel is uh, endangering their food supply. And they'll come after you. Now what happens as they seek to get away from the spiders that are coming after them is that they eventually run out of space, and that leaves them the necessity of crawling inside homes uh, and making their webs inside homes. And uh, back when I was eight years old, uh, our community f literally filled up with them. They were everywhere. There were black widow webs. I, was learned, I learned from my dad right away to tell a black widow web is different from another web. It has no pattern whatsoever, and it's extremely strong. It has a greater tensile strength than steel. And uh, amazing webs. And so uh, stay away from those webs, my dad would say. You don't want to be bitten by the spider that lives in that web because it causes you a lot of trouble. It may even kill you. I didn't know what kill you meant when I was a little kid. Uh, I just didn't know, but it didn't sound good. And <laughs> it didn't sound favorable. And so uh, as uh, the time went on, uh, you know, the, those things are buzzing around the community. Everybody's talking about it from the market to church to every place else. That's what was on everybody's conversational line. Now, my mother was a, a good housekeeper and uh, certainly, uh, you know, adequate. And I remember the morning I got up in my Roy Rogers slash Star Wars pajamas. And uh, who would, who's heard of Roy Rogers? No? Uh, Dale and Trigger. And uh, you might have heard of Tonto and the Lone Ranger and Silver, but maybe not so much Roy Rogers. But anyway, I had Roy Rogers pajamas on. And I went into the bathroom to get ready for school. Uh, yawned. And, and I realized I needed something that was under the sink. And I, I uh, opened the little door to the cabinet under the sink, and I stuck my hand in to get it, and wah! All of a sudden, I found my hand right in the middle of the unmistakable strength of the Black Widow web, and my heart pounded in my little chest. I felt like it was trying to get out and uh, go someplace other than where we were. And uh, so uh, my mother, what? And I said, there's a Black Widow, and she come and kill it. So my mom came running in and not having any better weapon on. She took her bedroom slipper and turned it into a bookmark. And uh, she was, at any rate, uh, we had them inside our homes. They were inside everybody's homes. They were all over the place. Well, uh, our community, like every community, probably even Agoura Hills, has uh, a health department or something akin to it. Or you have a health department related to this area. And in a serious effort to justify their existence, our health department ha had a meeting. And in that meeting, <laughs> that's a subtle humor, but I think that's a funny line. Uh, <laughs> same thing could be said at higher levels of Congress. And uh, so uh, at any rate, they had a meeting and they decided that, and a lot of people always decide this, education is always the answer to everything. Never mind that we have more education taking place now than at any time in history. And we've still got problems. Uh, but at any rate, uh, that was the, what they thought, and so they had a meeting, and at the meeting they decided what we need to do is print up a pamphlet with a picture of the black widow spider on it, and then tell what kind of webs they have, and uh, what, how serious the bites are, and what the symptoms of the bite would be, encouraging people to go to the doctor, but more than anything, in those days we had a poison called DDT, and uh, we sprayed it on everything. It was like Windex, we sprayed it so much. And uh, so... Uh, it, uh, it was a good killer of black widows and is a great killer of mosquitoes and we'd have a lot less people die in the world if those were, that were politically correct had shut up and let them spray uh, DDT in the <laughs> tropics and uh, kill the, a lot more people that stay alive. But no, we get, uh, don't want to kill a butterfly, so let's let 100,000 people die. So, uh, so anyway, now I'm an animal guy, as you'll find out before the program's over, but... Common sense is common sense. And at uh, any rate, they, uh, they put the, together this pamphlet and they got volunteers. Well, you know who's good for volunteering? Old people, like <laughs> moi. And so they got a, a lot of old people to uh, put on suits. In those days, if you were a volunteer, you actually wore your suit and tie. But this was June, and it was an especially warm uh, June. 
And uh, down our driveway, it was just before school was letting out, but down our driveway there came an older, overweight, balding man. The uh, longer I tell the story, the more I look like that man. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he came down our driveway, and he looked, looked serious. And uh, he had in one hand a huge stack of uh, Black Widow pamphlets. And uh, he came to our front door and rang the doorbell. My mother was a very shy woman, and she was reluctant even to answer the door, but finally did. And uh, so she opened the door and said, can I help you? Now, I'm curious. I, I don't like to miss much. So I was right behind my mom. And here's this uh, very serious older man saying, now, I need to tell you now, we've got an emergency going on in Altadena, California. Not just a little emergency, a big emergency. We've got an epidemic of black of spiders, and worst of all, they're biting the children. He pointed at me, and I, I looked back. He says, and they're, they're danger suckers. And uh, he says, uh, I'm going to tell you this right now. He says, uh, I'm coming here door to door to hand you a pamphlet. Here, take one. And uh, she took it, and uh, I was absolutely fascinated because it had a picture of a really big female black widow spider poised in her irregular web with her shiny black body, but on the underside of her shiny black body was an hourglass that was bright red. Proof positive you were looking at a black widow spider. And so he says, now I want you to read the, the, this pamphlet cover to cover. It was just a fold out. It was just one. It was like a church bulletin. And uh, he says, read it cover to cover. And after you do, we're hoping you'll buy some DDT, some poison, some spider poison and kill, spray your whole property. Spray your neighbor, spray everything. Spray your dog underneath his arms and everything, every place. Do it all. We want to get these spiders taken care of. And uh, so he, uh, he handed it to her and he says, will you help us? Will you help us? He seemed so desperate. My mother was always uh, easy for a, easy sucker for a good pitch like that. And so she said, sure, certainly we'll be a part of helping. And so Mr. Beasley walked back up our driveway out of our lives. We never saw him again. And uh, so... There stood my mother in the morning sunshine, bathed in sunlight, reading this pamphlet. And I was eight, looking up at her, and I was looking up at the picture of the female black widow spider poised in her web. And I could hardly wait to get my hands on this pamphlet. Now, although I was only eight, I had read every single book at the Altadena Public Library on animals that hurt, bother, scar, and injure, and make sick human beings. <laughs> And I thought I could add this knowledge uh, to my already uh, large catalog of morbid knowledge about animals and wanted her to be through, so I was just trembling with excitement so I could read this pamphlet. So she finally finished it and she said, read this, young man. And then she stood there with her arms folded in a very defensive body language posture. And, she, and you know what my eyes landed on, the first sentence? Because here I am 70, and I'm telling you a story that took place when I was eight, probably just before my birthday and uh, to be nine. And, uh, and so uh, I read it in the very first sentence I can remember to this day. Children, eight, which I was, years and younger, are particularly susceptible to the bite of the black widow spider. And if they should be bitten, they could experience one or all of the following uh, symptoms. Discoloration and swelling at the site of the bite. Nausea, sometimes in parentheses, vomiting. Uh, uh, severe headaches, arm and leg and abdominal cramps, uh, dizziness, and on uh, some rare occasions, death will follow the bite of the black widow spider. I was so excited to read this that our world, my world, was now filled up with something exciting. It wasn't just Altadena, the boring little city where middle-class people lived. It was Monsterville, and uh, so <laughs> this was so cool. And uh, even was forming in my ideas, we spoke uh, an idea. And, and my mother all of a sudden interrupted this fantasy life that I was having, this rich and full fantasy life I was having. And she said, she grabbed the pamphlet and she pulled it out of my hands and then she used it to wave at me. And she said, Gary, Michael, Richmond. Now, you know when they use their middle, your middle name that they're going to say something serious. At least that was true when I was young. Is that still true? Do you get your middle name when something really big to drive a point home, the middle name? So she says, Gary Michael Richmond, she says, if I catch you even near a black widow spider web, she says, I will spank your bottom so hard you will look backwards for the rest of your life. <laughs> Which, if she said now, might get her a talk with the uh, <laughs> animal, 
or not the animal, the child's rights department, you know. <laughs> but in those days, that was common uh, conversation between children and uh, thoughtful adults trying to raise children <laughs> to be a, contra- a contribution to society. And so uh, I, you know, had kind of pictured uh, looking backwards for the rest of my life, and it didn't sound good. But it wasn't as bad as uh, the bite of a black widow spider, or nearly as exciting. So I lied to her and said, I wouldn't do that. And uh, so she says, oh, yes, you would, because you're that kind of child. (laughs) And uh, so she was right, because my mind was conceiving already the greatest idea I had ever had, a Black Widow Safari. And it was my intention to get Eric Munson and Doug Ziegler, my two closest friends, on Saturday morning, and we would go out with my Skippy peanut butter jar with holes poked in the lid, and uh, we would capture 10 Black Widow spiders. Then we would walk a block and a half to Elliott Junior High School in Altadena, and we would go to a red anthill I had discovered near the shot put a ring, and uh, we would stomp on the red anthill, and uh, it would cause the ants to come flowing out to see what was uh, causing the stomping, and then we would pour into their midst uh, uh, 10 black widow spiders. There would be this huge interspecies war where they would just go crazy attacking each other. But by sheer numbers and force, the red ants would finally overpower the black widows, hauling legs and parts of bodies deep into the earth to consume. And somehow then we would have done our part for Altadena, California. (laughs) Yes, friends, even America. And so, you know, they're just ideas too good to wait. You know, and when you're that age, waiting a week is like waiting a million years. So we waited a a million years, and Saturday finally came. It always does. And my dad and mom got in our uh, 51 Chevy station wagon with, uh, it was tan, with fake wood paneling. And uh, they backed out of the the, uh, driveway uh, and went down Lake Avenue, down to Colorado Boulevard to go to Sears to get what they needed to kill the black widows. Now, I had meeting me, both Doug and Eric, and Doug, thankfully, showed up. He was my very closest friend and confidant, would never rat me out. And uh, we were just blood brothers. We were just true friends. And I think of him that way, and we'll go to the grave remembering that Doug was my best friend at this time of life, somebody you could count on. And so he showed up first, and I said, man, I'm glad you showed up first. He says, why? I says, because I, I, I want to talk this over with you, but Eric is not good at keeping secrets, Doug. You know that. He says, yeah, he's kind of a blabbermouth. And I says, and if, if anybody finds out and tells my mom that I was catching black widows, she's going to spank me so hard, I'm going to look backwards for the rest of my life. I said, so I think we need to make Eric take an oath that he won't tell that we went on this black widow safari today. He says, that's a good idea. About two minutes, Eric shows up. And both Doug and I are standing there with our body language saying that we have something to say to him. Both of us standing there with our arms like this and looking stern. And he says, what? what what's wrong? I said, I'll tell you what's wrong, Doug. You're a blabbermouth. You've always been a blabbermouth, and chances are you may always be a blabbermouth. But I can't have anybody find out that I was part of a Black Widow Safari, so if you want to go with us, you have to take an oath. And he said, what kind of oath? I said, it's the kind if you don't keep it, something terrible happens. He said, what? I said, it doesn't matter. Are you in, you out? Are you going to go on the Black Widow Safari with us or not? He says, yeah. I says, then repeat after me. So I says, I, Eric... He goes, I, Eric, promise never, promise never to tell anybody about the Black Widow Safari. To tell anybody about the Black Widow Safari. Because if I do, because if I do, the devil will make my mother's hair fall out. He said, what? I said, say it or you can't go. He said, okay, because if I do, the devil will make my mother's hair fall out. I says, was that so bad? He says, not really. And so... We headed down my driveway towards my backyard where I'd already located several webs and spiders and to catch them, but as we got right in front of my front door, the front door came open, and standing in the middle of it was my 12-year-old brother, Steve, with that nasty, conceited, arrogant, I'm 12, but you guys are only eight, look on his face. And uh, he, he says, hi, little guys, what are you doing? As if we even had a right to be alive. And uh, Doug... Eric blurts out, hi, Steve, guess what? We're going on a Black Widow Safari. We're going we're gonna to catch 10 Black Widow spiders, put them in that Skippy peanut butter jar, and then dump them on a red anthill down at Elliot. It's going to be so cool. Doug and I were looking with amazement at Eric, not believing our ears that we had not made it to the backyard before he blabbed the secret to my brother, of all people, who enjoyed getting me in trouble. And so my brother looked at us, and he says, no, no, you're not going to do that. 
You know why? Because, and boy, did we hate hearing these words, because you're too young. Uh, admit it, kids. Don't you hate it when people tell you you're too young? That goes all the way through your teens. But it stops at some point in life, and you just wish somebody would tell you you were too young to do this. <laughs> and uh, so, actually, I'm getting the senior citizens discounts at every place now. And uh, it's actually a pretty good thing. <laughs> But the best thing is grandparenting. Uh, at any rate, uh, uh, my brother stood there and I was deflated because here's this dream safari that we now can't go on because my brother's taken charge and is, is enjoying the control he has over us because of size and position. And he could tell our parents. And so he says, I'll tell you what, that's a good idea though. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll catch the black widows. Gary, if you're good, I'll let you hold the jar. And I went in to go, like I normally did, but I didn't. I just handed him the catching stick, and I took the jar from Eric. And uh, he says, well, do you know where they are? And I says, yeah, I know where they are. So we went to the back. And in those days, there's two things that were in everybody's backyard that probably aren't there too much anymore. One of them was an incinerator. And that sounds very strange to the kids in the audience. An incinerator? Why would you have an incinerator? In those days, we actually burned our trash, which was one of the reasons that I lived in Altadena for three months before I realized that we had mountains. The smog was so bad in those days, it was just a constant inversion layer filled up with uh, incinerator smoke. And I woke up the third month we lived in our house and, and saw this huge mountain in front of our house, and I went back in the house, and I said, we've got a mountain! And my dad laughed out, and I said, you didn't know we had a mountain? I said, no, it's the first time I've seen it. And he says, oh, we do. And said, we've got a whole bunch of them, the San Gabriel Mountains right there. So, any rate, we went back, and the other thing that we had in our backyards were tool sheds, where men, real men, had a vice, and, uh, you know, that they could hold pieces of wood in and cut, and saw, and do things that men do, and uh, pound nails and, and do things like that. And uh, so <laughs> uh, I knew that there were several webs under that tool shed which sat up on big concrete blocks so you could look under there. And what you saw was a sea of black widow webs under that uh, tool shed. I knew that we would catch five or six easily just at the edges of the tool shed inside. So we went between the back fence and the tool shed. And my brother got down on his knees and he looked up under and he saw one. And that stick disappeared under the tool shed, and I could hear it tapping a little bit, and I saw his hand trembling with excitement, and all of a sudden it kind of froze, and he started bringing it out slowly. And then a little bit of the stick appeared, more of the stick, until finally, at the end of the stick, there was a medium-sized black widow spider trying to figure out a way to get off the stick. So he stood up very slowly, and he said to me, open the jar. So I opened the jar and held it out, my hands were shaky because I didn't want it to bounce up in the air and land on my hand, but he knocked it in and closed it. We looked up and yes, the red hourglass, proof positive. We had our first black widow. And they came pretty quickly, the first four came, but on the fifth one, and he said, open the jar, and I opened the jar, I lifted the lid, and a black widow had attached itself to the lid, dropped out of the lid and bounced off my hand and started letting itself by its web down towards the ground. But I lifted it real high, got it back in the jar, and closed it, and devised a scientific method to keep the black widows all at the bottom of the jar. <laughs> and the black widows were yelling, it's an 8.0, run for your lives. <laughs> They'd been waiting for that 8.0 even ever since. But uh, <laughs> anyway, it worked, and all the black widows, I've never seen an 8.0, but a lot of bugs in kids' jars have, and <laughs> I guarantee you that. Uh, and so we got up to to uh, nine spiders, and it's just like they dried up. There was no more spiders on our, our yard. So my brother said what was probably the logical thing. He says, well, we've run out of spiders on our property. Let's just take nine down to Elliott Junior High School. But I was ticked off the, of the way my brother had controlled the situation to decide to try to get control back. I said, Steve, you know Dad would be disappointed if we didn't finish what we start, because he always says, finish what you start. And we got nine, and we need 10, or we're not finished. He says, yeah, but where we look? Well, that's when Eric thought of an idea so good we took the curse off his mother. <laughs> he said, why don't we go next door and try to catch him on Mrs. Brown's property, which means nothing to you, but you don't realize that we considered with all of our heart to be true that she was an authentic witch, card-carrying, uh, in a big coven with big boiling pots of who knows what. We were pretty sure that toads and frogs that lived in the neighborhood used to be children. 
And uh, at any rate, she had very few teeth in her mouth. And when she talked, all the sound came rushing through the teeth. She said, oh, my George. And, uh, and she hated children, and her bony, gnarly fingers uh, you know, were weird-looking and evil-looking. And uh, she had so many wrinkles on her face, she had to file through them to find her mouth. And uh, so <laughs> yeah, she was evil-looking. We were all sure she was a witch. That was the neighborhood theory, and even some of the adults bought in. And so she only wore black, long black dresses. That didn't help anything either. And never combed her long gray hair, which was down scraggly and past her waist. So I'm sure she was just a sad widow. In retrospect, I think back and think it would have been nice to be nice to her. But how do you do that when you really, truly think somebody's a witch? And so, at any rate, we, we decided the adventure was back on. I mean, we may not be catching, I may not be getting to catch a a black widow, but I was now on the property of a witch. And so we dropped in for Silent Shadows, and we went to her greenhouse. It never occurred to me to ask, why would a witch have a greenhouse uh, but, uh, and appreciate things of beauty? But at any rate, we got in there. And my brother saw this uh, big five-gallon clay pot with a hole in the bottom of it, the kind you'd put a, a potted palm tree in, and it was sitting on some bricks. And he said to Eric and Doug, turn over that pot, and let's see if there's anything under it. And they did, and we all jumped back at once, because in that big red clay pot was a black widow whose body was bigger than my thumbnail. She looked, she was throbbing with poison. What made it more interesting was that her body was surrounding a big, silky, white egg sac. And as we leaned in, we saw that the, the egg sac was just about to burst. Now, they have 125 to 450 babies uh, at each uh, hatching. And we could see that they were just about to hatch, and now there would be 450 more to join the already too crowded community of black widow spiders in Altadena. We had found the black widow queen that was on a witch's property. You know, it's like, shoot, this is better than any science fiction story we ever read. So my, my uh, brother said to, uh, uh, he says, boy, that's a big one. Will she fit in the jar, Gary? And I looked and I said, yeah. And so he started working with that, and she, instead of trying to run, she bit the stick. She was aggressive, and she tried to save her babies. So he finally wiped out the web and finally got her in the end of the stick, and he said to me, Gary, open the jar. So <laughs> black widows were bouncing all over the thing, and I said, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. They were all down at the bottom, and I lifted it off and held it out. My hands were quivering, and he finally got that big spider on the stick and lifted it up in the air and over towards the jar. My hands were trembling, his hands were trembling, and just before he got her to the point where he could tap her in the jar, she jumped off and landed right between my bare feet. And I, I backed up, sucked in air, and I stood there with rapt attention as he tried to get her on the stick, and he'd start to lift it up, and she'd jump off again, and get it on the stick, she jumped off again. Nearly a minute had passed during this process when I felt a slight tingling on my left hand, which was holding the jar. And I realized that now for a minute, I had had the lid in my right hand over here, but the jar in my left hand over here. And very slowly, I looked over and confirmed my worst fear. My worst fear was to have one of those black widows on me. And there it was, a medium-sized female black widow spider out for a stroll on my arm, my tiny little susceptible eight-year-old arm. <laughs> now, I thought the best start, since I didn't want all nine of them on my arm was to let go of the jar. So the jar hit the ground, and black widows began to scatter everywhere, which is a creepy thing in and of itself, especially when you're barefooted. But I stood there, and I had this thought go right through my brain and to my heart, and it's, I, I could die. Now, this is the first time I had ever entertained that thought. I had never thought before I could die. I never thought of it in those terms. But I had learned, uh, because my family wouldn't have been considered a Christian family, nominally Christian, in that they went to church on Easter, and we did have a Christmas tree. And uh, so we, very nominal. Uh, my family was even, I'd say, respectful of Christian things, but certainly didn't talk about it much, and the name of Christ or the God the Father, the Holy Spirit, were not ever talked about, no teachings were given. My dad was big on truth, I'll tell you that. And uh, so at any rate, but I was sure I was going to die. And all I knew theologically was good people went to heaven and bad people went to hell. Well, I knew what kind of kid I was. I was a kid that would be willing to lie to his mother about what he's going to do with black widows. 
and I could only think that that black widow on my arm was going to sink her fangs deep into my arm, and uh, she was going to pump as much poison as she could, and then I would get discolored and swollen at the side of the bite. I would get a terrible upset stomach, do the worst thing that a kid can do, throw up in front of his friends. Uh, then I would begin to get dizzy, and then I would get a, a head-bursting headache, and then the world would get dim. I'd go into a faint and then die and, and go to the place where terrible things happen. That's really what I thought. That was my theology at the time. I couldn't think of a word. That was the only time in my life I actually feel like I didn't have something to say. But I did get out a pretty good sound. And it was like this. <laughs> my brother looked over because he'd never heard me say that before in my life. <laughs> he looked over and he saw the black widow on my arm and it was walking up this way towards the sleeve of my t-shirt. And when it got right about here, it stopped for a second and looked at the t-shirt hanging down. And in my mind, she was sizing up a good place to run in and make a web. <laughs> and then I'd be back there in back Mrs. Brown's backyard as a black widow's catching device for insects, because certainly the smells that would come out of that armpit would attract insects. And uh, so uh, at any rate, I, I kept with my brother. <laughs> he knew what I was asking for. Please save my life. I don't want to die. So he, got his, he dropped the stick, and he decided he needed to get serious about this. And he took his finger in that position, and just as she was about to enter the opening, BAM! He knocked that, finger fly, that spider flying. And this feeling of life just whooshed all over me again as I got my breath again. And I dropped the jar, and uh, I kicked the jar away, and just, we just left the backyard of that witch, glad to be alive. She really wasn't a witch, of course. If you're young and impressionable, there aren't any witches living near you, and don't worry about this story. It won't happen to you, because you're not as dumb as I was. And uh, so... <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> At any rate, we, uh, we didn't tell my mom. Even when I became an adult, I didn't tell my mom that story. Uh, <laughs> and so, at any rate, uh, but I do recall that there was a specific time that I was aware of the fact that life can come to an, an end. I didn't know exactly what was going to happen afterwards, but I didn't suspect it would be good unless I was prepared for it. When I was 16, I was invited to a meeting that had about this many people in a room about this size, and they had a speaker that spoke primarily to youth, and that speaker said, and this was just a, a few weeks after my father had died of a heart attack, and he said to the audience, he says, I don't know, I sense that there's somebody in the audience that is longing for the love of a father. Boy, that was never more true than it was true about me because I love my dad and to this day think he was the best man with whom I've ever had the privilege to associate. And uh, at any rate, uh, I was missing my dad and the speaker grabbed me and I thought maybe they'd even told him about me. And he says, if you were missing love of father and guidance and you want to make sure your life goes in the right direction, because I was afraid I was going to live my days in juvenile hall and later on in penitentiaries, uh, he says, I, you need to accept Jesus Christ into your life. Let him become your friend and forgive your sins. Well, I had a lot of sins to forgive, so I really felt I was a candidate, and I wanted to go forward. Uh, but the speaker then said something that creeped me out. He, uh, I was sitting with the high school kids and, uh, at 16, and he says, if you're standing near somebody who needs to receive Christ, put your hands on them. They do that sort of thing in an Assembly of God church. And uh, so... I was touched by so many kids, I felt violated. And because uh, they knew I needed Christ. There was absolutely no doubt. Uh, done deal. This kid needs Christ. He's, he's not going to go to heaven unless he gets Christ. And so, I, and I had roped two friends to come along with me. And they were getting touched all over too. And didn't speak to me for a couple of days because of it. Because I roped them into helping my sister, my later on to be sister-in-law to win a stereo. It's when stereos were first invented. And uh, so, at any rate, when the service was over, I was going to go forward, but it scared me so bad to be touched, I stopped thinking about the message and the purpose for going forward and all that, and just waited till we could get out of there. And we went to my friend's, you don't even know what a Packard is, but it's his uh, 53 Packard convertible with red leather upholstery with the top down. And we drove up and down Colorado Boulevard at Bob's drive-in and got those shakes you can't suck through a straw. And, and uh, then we more of the Rose Bowl and drag raced. And about 1 o'clock in the morning, I got home, started getting ready for bed. And as I put my pajamas on, and then I, I actually got in bed and started laying my head on the pillow, 
But it was just as if I was hearing a voice said, wait a minute, we're not finished yet, you and I. And I knew it was God speaking to me. And I, I said, let's see, what do I do, God? I'm trying to remember what the speaker said in the auditorium. I says, I think religious people get on their knees when they ask forgiveness. So I got on my knees next to my bed, and I started specifically asking God to forgiveness. And the main subject was lying. I was really a good liar. Uh, I wasn't much on other sins, and I was pretty nice to most kids, and, but lying was heavy on my heart. And I started asking specific forgiveness about lying to my parents and other people and teachers uh, for various things. But I got to a point where I couldn't remember anymore, except I knew in my heart there was tons more I wasn't remembering of sins that I had committed. And I got this scary feeling, what if I can't remember them all? Am I still, do I still have a shot at heaven if I can't remember all my sins? But the way he had talked about God, God wanted me and wanted me to come to him and trust him. And so I prayed this prayer, and I said, Lord, I'm, I don't know why it is I can't remember all my sins, but I'm pretty sure you can. So can you forgive the ones I can't remember today? And as I remember them and, and I bring them up to you, can we? I'll tell you I'm sorry about that too. But for tonight, that's the best I could do. But I got this overwhelming feeling of peace that I was forgiven. And I laid down in bed and had, oh, maybe the first good night's sleep I'd had for a long time, especially since my dad died. And uh, so uh, the next morning was Sunday, and I went in to my brother, and I says, could I go to church with you today? Because he had started going to church. He says, you go to church? I says, I know, Steve, but I think I need it. He says, I can't argue with that. <laughs> the Bible says that God is a father to the fatherless, and I needed a dad. The youth director at that church took me into his life along with his wife, and God supplied one for several months to get me launched into the Christian life. And boy, that was the best moment in my life, that accepting Christ as my Savior, and then later on accepting Carol Sue Sowers uh, and turning her name into Carol Sue Richmond was the next best choice I made. And I have never been sorry for the day I accepted Christ, only thankful and at peace. And as a result of that choice to accept Christ, I'm not afraid to die anymore. I still have a great fear of pain. I don't I like the idea of hurting terribly, but I know if it hurts so bad that it ends up in death that I'll go to heaven. And that is a great hope to have. And the Bible says appointed unto every man is a time to die. We all have an appointment with death. We don't know where it's written down or what time it is. But it will come as surely as tomorrow will come. And I'm sure it will. So uh, I don't know. I'm sure that most of you in here say, I, I remember when the time when I realized I was mortal and that I could die and that I needed, that, that God was the only one that could handle eternity and the big things, and I accepted him. But there may still be someone here that hasn't come to that point or thought about it recently. Well, uh, I told you that story because John really likes that story. I, I often tell it. I've probably told it 2,000, 3,000 times. I never get tired of telling it because I like the part where I scare people. But... Uh, <laughs> But he, he gave me the assignment to tell one more story. These are his two favorites. The second service, uh, I got uh, Pastor John's two favorites. But they're two of my favorites, too, to tell. And uh, if people often ask me, if you go back to the zoo and if you could relive one day of your life at the zoo, which was seven years long, I was an animal keeper for part of the first year. But the six years plus, I was the veterinary assistant, which is like being a physician's assistant if you're in, the, in medicine which is uh, uh, higher than being a nurse. It's not more important, but it's just higher in terms of uh, realm of responsibility. You can prescribe medicine and do surgeries, things like that. And so I became the first veterinary assistant in a zoo in history, just like I was the first full-time pastor to single parents in history. So I have two firsts in my life, pretty adventurous life altogether. And um, I, uh, uh, I gotta make sure I remember what story I'm telling. <laughs> I've got about 140 really good stories and then a lot of anecdotes. But at any rate, here's the story. The story is that the day I would, this is the subject I was on, the day I would like to duplicate is this one. But I have to give you one little bit of background. My dad was blue collar all the way. And uh, he, uh, and, and the era that we were living in allowed us, I mean, cell phones are a whole foreign thing. I went to the uh, show the other night and up and down the rows, I saw, you know, the show hadn't started yet. It was still during the previews. There must have been 60 cell phones that I could see from where I was sitting. And even some of them stayed out during the movie. And I'm thinking, boy, you're attached to that thing by the hip, you know. You're going to need surgery to get it off of you someday. And uh, 
But at any rate, it wasn't like that when I was young. In fact, I was on a party line. And, and some of you are looking, party line? What does that mean? A party line was that two people shared the one telephone line that came in. You could tell it was your call. Like our was just ring, ring, that ring, that was our ring. And then our party lines was ring, 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 ring. And then they knew to pick up. We didn't pick up their ring, and they didn't pick up our ring. And that's how we told. But this lady talked on the phone forever. Now, my dad had a job where he needed to talk to his foreman every day to see where he should show up to work the next day. And of course, every time he'd pick up the phone to call his foreman, she'd be on the phone talking, gossiping. And it led to a lot of interesting conversations to my father trying to be respectful to an older woman, but uh, not always succeeding. <laughs> At any rate, my dad used to tell me, he said, if I, after, when I get home, I don't want any of your friends calling the house because I need to talk to my foreman because this is how we make our money. This is how I feed you and put clothes on your body and stuff. So don't get on the phone. You'll be in trouble. And your, your friends might even be in trouble for calling because I want you to go and tell them not to call after 5 o'clock. So I did. And uh, I, I can't remember ever uh, that ever being a problem in my life. Uh, I just didn't, but I'll tell you what it did do to me. I became Pavlov's dog. You know how you salivate every time the bell rings? Every time a phone rings to this day, I'm 70, and he was telling me these things when I was five and six. And that, you know, and all through my childhood, I was, uh, I reacted to the phone like it was a fearful instrument that might get me in trouble with my dad. And so he, he had another thing. He says, uh, don't have him call after five. It's not polite to call somebody after 7.30. And if they call after 9, it's only to tell you that somebody died. And then there's only two things that are of importance, who died and how much is in it for us. And so he didn't really mean that, but he, that was his attempt at humor, which was he liked I Love Lucy. But uh, uh, at any rate, so to this day, when I get late night phone calls, even to this day, it makes me feel creepy, like I'm going to get bad news or news I don't want to hear. And uh, but... I was working at the zoo, I was the veterinary assistant, I was on the emergency squad called the Macho Squad, uh, and uh, that's because there were six Hispanic guys that were on the squad with me and they didn't like an uh, emergency uh, unit, uh, they did, thought that was too scientific, so they said, oh, we don't like emergency unit, you know, so let's just call it the Macho Squad, you know, it's, it's <laughs> much more manly, you know, and uh, so I actually liked it myself, uh, the Macho Squad. And uh, I was the only non-Hispanic on The reason they were so good is they had this whole code of machismo and being a man, which meant they had to uh, face danger. They couldn't back away from it. So if an animal jumped on you, they jumped on the animal to pull it off. And they had the courage to do it. So I'm very thankful for their courage. Well, that starts the story. It's 12.03 AM. Couldn't be darker. It couldn't be more night. And the phone rings. And my heart starts pounding. I'm getting echoes of my childhood. If anybody calls at midnight, it's only to hear that somebody's died. And uh, so I have, I'm having that thought in my mind. And so I said, hello, very carefully. And it's my boss from the zoo on the other side of the phone. He says, Richmond, did I wake you up? <laughs> and I says, no, that's OK, Doc. I had to get up to answer the phone anyway. And uh, so <laughs> he says, oh, you kidder. And uh, he says, uh, hey, guess what? There's a, a killer ape loose in Highland Park, California. I said, there's a killer ape loose in Highland Park? He says, yeah, and the cops want us to go catch it for him. I says, man, we better get over there. I said, that's a bad neighborhood. That ape's going to need our help. <laughs> and uh, so, so <laughs> and he says, you're a kidder. Just get dressed and come in as quick as you can. I was about 20. I lived in Eagle Rock, so it was, you know, 15 minutes from the zoo. But I jumped into my dark brown pants, my tan shirt, and jumped into my Rambler, a cheapo car. But zookeepers were a poor lot. And uh, so I got to the zoo, and out in the sea of emptiness uh, that was the parking lot, except for one car to protect and to serve. And the blue and amber lights were pulsating into the night. And two cops uh, that were working the graveyard shift were inside their uh, patrol car, and who were both heavy smokers, because out of each side of the windows were big clouds of cigarette smoke coming out each side. And I pulled up next to them. Now, I had on my arm, I don't have anything on this safari coat. Uh, but on my arm at the zoo, there was a big patch that says Los Angeles Zoo. And uh, so, it, I mean, it's huge. You could read it from the back row that it said LA Zoo. And uh, so I pulled up next to the car, couldn't have been 10 feet away from him, 
And the one cop nearest to me, the driver, says, you work at the zoo? <laughs> and what went into my mind was, oh good, I'm going to be working with the literate tonight. They can read. <laughs> but what came out of my mouth was more respectful to uh, people uh, that worked as policemen. I said, yes, sir, I do. Can I help you? And he says, yeah. He says, uh, jump in the back. Your boss is up at the hospital and told us to bring you up and he'd have all the equipment ready. So he, we drove up. It was a prisoner compartment. I'd never been in a prisoner compartment before or since. And uh, so they, they locked me in this prisoner compartment. We went up to where my boss was and we then threw open the trunk and then threw in the black bag, the uh, uh, the capture gun, the capture pistols. We had an assortment of nets and a pole that had a noose on the end of it called a come along where you could grab an ape's arm and get a hold of it. And at any rate, a number of tools that would be good for this particular job. We then drove as quickly as we could on the Golden State Freeway, the five, uh, from there back to Highland Park. It was about a 15 minute drive. And that car attained speeds above 100 miles an hour. I'd never gone 100 before. And it was cool because we were passing cars like they were standing still. I'm a friendly sort, and I waved at people with a rose parade wave <laughs> as I went past them. I didn't mind being noticed. I thought it was cool. But my boss was better educated and jabbed me in the army. He says, they're going to think we're busted. They're trying to get us to Parker Center, to, you know, to arraign us and to put us in jail. And I hadn't thought about that before. But I imagined that this night we were headed towards a giant ape whose name was Kong. And he was going through Highland Park. Boom. Kaboom, 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 grabbing a cop, biting his head off, throwing it in a nearby Eagle Rock. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, it was all big adventure to me. But the cops are all stopped. They got this one guy making a, a, a sign that says break. And so they stop and they, he says, turn left, just down the street, three quarters of a block is command center. And I turned to my boss and I said, Bill, I says, they got a command center. In fact, they called it a command post. I says, we've declared war on a killer ape. And uh, he says, just be quiet, Gary. And so we got there. They opened the doors for us to get out. And we followed. I followed my boss. And, and the policeman that came to the door was a lieutenant. And he had, they, the cops called him a suit. <laughs> I guess that was the uh, term they used for the guys higher up that were making the big decisions. But I kid you not, and I verified this later on in my life when I did a Christian policeman's banquet at Knott's Berry Farm. There were about 12 guys that were at that banquet that had been there that night. But when I got out of the car, there was a sea of policemen. It w this was not a little event in their mind, because when they heard over the radio, Killer Ape loose in Highland Park, it was a slow night every place else. They all converged on this one <laughs> spot. There were cars parked at every angle. It looked like daylight. Over in, in the sky, there were not one, but two police hel helicopters. The uh, apparent owner of the uh, Killer Ape had been attacked by this animal and was just chewed to pieces. I saw him too. And uh, so this had turned into a big event. This was not a safe neighborhood. It was a gang neighborhood. Most of the houses had steel bars on the windows. And I think most of the people were meeting for the first time that night as they came out to see what was going on. They would say, I live there. Oh, yeah, I live over here. I never met you before. It's because I don't come out at night. I just get, <laughs> get home from work, and I go right in the house and lock all the doors. It was that bad a neighborhood. So anyway, everybody is out in their pajamas and bathrobes and that sort of thing. And uh, so they bring us up on a lawn, and this policeman blows a whistle, and policemen come in in a very tight convergence of policemen. There were more than 50 officers there. Just how many more, I couldn't tell you for sure, but I verified up to 50 and said, no chance you're wrong on that number. You can't go wrong with that number. Although I am given to exaggeration, as you may sense. And uh, so, anyway, <laughs> but this is not an exaggeration. So uh, the uh, lieutenant says to my boss, this is Dr. William Hulsizer, his assistant Gary Richmond from Los Angeles Zoo. They're, the police don't know what they're doing on this uh, exotic animal thing, so we're going to turn this operation over to the LA Zoo. Take it, Doc. Well, my boss was an introvert, and uh, an introvert doesn't like attention. He doesn't like to have attention called to his person. He doesn't have like in public for requests to be made of him. And two, three people as a crowd. And so he went sheet white with fear as he's standing in front of a bunch of burly cops that are used to breaking drug busts and doing all that sort of thing and, and uh, looking for thieves and, and uh, murderers and, and that sort of thing. But at any rate, my, my boss is terrified and he could hardly get out the words, uh, 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 I'm not the one that usually captures the animal. My, my assistant is in charge of capture. Uh, why doesn't he take over? <laughs> now, the lieutenant didn't know what to do. 
But he, he just wanted to move on, so he looked at me up and down. I was a bit younger. I was about 27. And he looked at me, and he says, okay, you take it. Well, I like that. So we used to have a hero. You guys don't know, know much about him anymore. The name may be vaguely familiar, but his name was John Wayne. And John Wayne was a man just the way he'd posture himself and hold his shoulders and stand back and forth. So I figured I needed to look macho. I think the guys already assumed I was if I worked with dangerous animals all the time. So I said, men, is there anyone here that's seen the animal we're looking for? Well, one of the guys pushed a cop out towards us. He says, this guy saw it up real close. And the reason they were doing that is because the cops were divided by the lieutenant into groups of two and they were allowed to pull their guns because they all had seen what had happened to the master. He was chewed to pieces. And so they were allowed uh, to go around with their guns out, revolvers or whatever it is they call them. And uh, so uh, they said, he'll tell you how he saw it and what had happened. I'll just tell you what had happened before we got there is two policemen that were real good friends were looking, and these houses were all built real close together. So there was a lot of vegetation in between the homes, hardly enough for two guys to fit, plus the hedges, plus any other plants that they had in there. And they had their police billy club, they called it. You know, their, their what am I, which word am I looking for? Baton. Baton, yeah, their baton, their police baton in one hand, and they had their revolver in the other. And so they're using the, the baton to push back bushes and stuff to see what they're looking for. And one's usually a little ahead of the other one. I don't know if you've seen that's the way policemen go into a dangerous situation. And so this one policeman pushes back the hedge and ah, the ape jumps, jumps out of the bushes and just scares the policeman witless and he falls backward and shoots at it without much regard as to where his uh, buddy was and friend nearly hitting his buddy but he blew a hole in the side of the house that looked right in the family room. I know because I looked through that hole and have a healthy respect of what a bullet can do to a body after seeing what it did to a house. And uh, at any rate, they said, yeah, he saw it. And so I said, good. I said, that's good. It's good to know what we're going after. So I went to the policeman. I said, sir, you saw it? He says, yes. Yes, sir, I did. And I says, could you describe it to me? He says, oh, it was, um, I don't know, maybe this. And he was going between a small rhesus monkey and a baboon, <laughs> which would make a lot of difference <laughs> in what we were doing. And he kept, I says, it was elastic. I did it stretch. <laughs> I says, uh, all the policemen start laughing. They're starting to see me as a funny guy. And uh, so he says, no, no, I don't think it was elastic. It's just, it was dark, though, and it happened all so quickly. He says, you know, it's, it's like hard to, I, didn't, I don't know anything about monkeys and, uh, or apes. And, uh, and the, th the reason they were calling it an ape is it didn't have a tail, which was very suspect of it being an ape. So uh, the other guy hadn't seen it at all. He just had been scared half to death hearing the gun go off. And he put his hands over his head like this, hoping not to get shot by his partner again. And uh, so he was of no help, and the, and the policeman was of no help. He couldn't tell the color, brown, black, gray. I says, even a color would help me a little bit. But he couldn't tell. It had been a good and a fair question, but I decided I hadn't said it loud enough. So have you ever felt that way, that if you say it louder, you can communicate better? <laughs> A lot of husbands and wives feel that if they yell at each other, they'll hear each other better. It never works out. It just makes the other one convince you. They think that you think that they're deaf. And uh, so at any rate, uh, uh, I said again, is there anybody here that has seen the animal we're looking for? Well, the policeman, like the Red Sea, parted. And down through uh, a row that had opened up for him just uh, was this man about 5'5", five, five, an old Hispanic gentleman uh, approaching 80 years of age, he had benevolent blotches of skin cancer, as Ernest Hemingway may have described him. And he looked wise, his eyes looked wise. I don't know what he had done for a living, but it looked like life had taught him a lot. And he came up and he was bandaged all in his arm, his chest, all down his leg, and his, his head up here was bandaged and part of his face. He had been chewed, there was going to be at least three or 400 stitches in order to put him back the way he had started the night, except that there would always be scars. And I thought, holy fat. And uh, that was my expression instead of using bad words. And uh, so uh, I says, I wonder what he was chewed up by. I was thinking baboon. Uh, they've been known to kill leopards. Not an easy animal to deal with in these kind of circumstances. I says, uh, do you know what kind of animal it is? He says, no, I don't know what kind of animal chaka is. I said, chaka? 
is, as you know, I have a son. He's been busted. He was like selling drugs. When he was in Vietnam, he got all shot up, and he still gets bad pains from his wounds. And so after the doctors wouldn't give him any more drug to kill the pain, he started selling drugs to get the money to buy the drugs that he took. And then he got arrested for becoming a dealer, and he's in jail leaving me alone to take care of Chaka, who my son got from a pet store in Vietnam. All the brass thought, well, my son got all shot up in Vietnam. The least we could do is let him have a monkey if he wants it. <laughs> he says, but you know, Chaka was only this big when he brought him home, but Chaka kept growing. And Chaka became very big. Now he's holding his hands out into baboon country. Very large, or a very large male macaque or something like that. And I'm thinking, with the injuries and all that, we're getting evidence, I'm sorry I'm getting. I'm pretty sure it's not a chimp. That would be even worse. And uh, so I says, well, can you uh, tell me uh, uh, anything about Chaka? He says, well, Chaka don't like nobody but my son. But since my son's been busted in jail, every day I have to take care of him. And every time I try to put the food in, he fights to get a hold of me to bite me. And, and so it's a war to get the food in and the food dish out. It's a war to put the water in to get the water out. He says, and today I lost the war. And boy, he did. He was all chewed up. So I said, you wouldn't happen to have a picture of Chaka with you, thinking he might have to run home and get it. But he just pulled out his wallet right there where your wife should be. <laughs> was a picture of Chaka. And I was so glad that he had the picture because it told me it was a stump-tailed macaque, a very rough and husky, male, burly, adult stump-tailed macaque, but not nearly as bad as a baboon, and certainly within my range, being a trained professional and all. And so, at any rate, he, uh, he says, yeah. And I says, well, I says, is there anything that Chaka likes, thinking that it would be bananas or grapes or peaches or something? And, but he didn't say that. He surprised me by saying, he says, oh, and his eyes got real big. He says, got excited. He says, oh, he says, yes. He says, Chaka likes it when you go, Chaka. Mm -mm. <laughs> I said, Chaka. Mm -mm. He says, he likes that a lot. And so I said, man, you've heard it. I says, as you go out looking for this uh, monkey in a few minutes, wherever you go, just shoot out a little Chaka. Mm -mm. And uh, so... Uh, we dismissed them to go look, and I says, you find them, you let us know, we'll go catch them. Night will be over. So they all left, and it was really funny because when they left the scene, we could hear from all over the neighborhood the sound. It sounded like a native uprising. And uh, in fact, I said to my boss, the natives are restless. And uh, he, he says, why did you make them say that? It's just making them sound so stupid. I said, shut up, I'm in charge. And I says, you didn't want to be in charge. You left it up for me. I says, live with it. I think they'll be helping their cause if they do something that makes them in a better mood. He says, who knows? And so we went for about 30 minutes, and all of a sudden, the guy running up so excited, he says, we have Chaka trapped in a garage. And I says, OK. He says, we've got flashlight beam on him. And uh, he says, bring what you need. And I said, how big is he? And he put his hands up about the right size. So I grabbed a net. That was going to be my tool of choice, a net. And my boss brought a capture pistol. Uh, to shoot a, a dart with, you know, anesthesia to make him go to sleep and uh, to tranquilize him. And so uh, we got there. I mean, this whole backyard is full. It's just full of cops that are finally, we've caught the suspect and we're getting ready to make an arrest here. Uh, and so I stepped forward and the door's cracked about that far with a big steel blue flashlight and I followed the beam down and there's Chaka in the light and he's looking up and they have kind of a pinkish, reddish face and he looks terrified. Whatever aggression, whatever machismo was in that monkey before has gone away. And I had read a book called The Behavior of Animals in Zoos and Circuses, uh, and it said that the deal about animals that are aggressive is when they run away from their home, they don't have anywhere to run to. So any aggression and strength and territorial behavior goes right out the window, and they become really subservient. And uh, so you don't have to worry about him as much. And I could see that all of his aggression was gone. He just wanted to get this over with. And he didn't want to get shot. He'd already been shot at. And he, did, he wanted this over. Well, the policeman didn't know this, and I didn't want to tell him. And so, because I rather at the end of the evening wanted to look like a hero. It's a, a sin, sinfulness of mine. And uh, so 
I said, I turned to the policeman, I said, I'm going in alone. <laughs> this whole yard is a buzz with, don't let him get along, let's go in with like four or five guys with guns. And I said, no, 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 there's no need. I says, he's not got quite the uh, spunk that he had when he chewed the guy up. I says, I think this will go real smoothly, but just let me take care of it my way. So I reached around and where a light switch should be, it was, and I clicked it on. There was now light throughout the whole garage. I slipped in the crack, and I had the net in front of me, and Chaka's hand was on the axle of a ski boat. He was underneath the boat, but his arms were on the axle of a ski boat trailer, and the boat was above him. And so I got in, and I says, Chaka, it's okay, buddy. You know, it's okay. And I just talked soft for a long time and just held my net, uh, you know, down so that I don't think he had seen a net uh, in his personal I don't think he knew what I had. So I just laid the net over him, and he fainted into it. Literally, he just went back over with his eyes closed. It was no big problem. There was no bravery involved with my act or anything. But I pulled as hard as I could to get him to the bottom of the net, and then I twisted the net. Then I took a gauze bandage that I always kept hanging out of my pocket, and I tied him into the net. And then I pulled him out from underneath the boat and then knocked on the door to have them leave it open. Then I posed <laughs> with my chaka flag. And uh, I got into the backyard with about 50 policemen there, staying there, and I says, men, you may go home to your wives and children. Los Angeles is, is once again safe. <laughs> Chaka is captured. And they cheered. I actually got a standing ovation from the policeman back there. And everybody was excited and proud of me except my boss, whose eye gave me the junior high eye roll. <laughs> and thinking, boy, what a bozo. Well, that was a good night. We took him back to the zoo. We locked him up for the quarantine that he'd have to go through for having bitten a guy for, uh, you know, so badly. And uh, then I got into my car and started driving home. I'd left it, as you remember, just a little after midnight. I was getting home at about 5 o'clock. The sun was beginning to just glow at the horizon. I was already excused for the next day of work. And, uh, but as I was driving home, I had this thought, because I am, if nothing else at times, dumbly and stupidly legalistic. Somehow I think that I have God's favor if I do just good things, and he's mad at me anytime I screw up. And so I started thinking, hey, wait a minute, you forgot to pray when you left the house to be on this operation. You didn't pray for this policeman, you didn't pray for your boss, you didn't pray for yourself, you didn't pray for the monkey or the people of Highland Park. You didn't, what kind of a Christian are you that you forgot to be spiritual? You didn't think about God much during the whole operation. Now, I had early on in my life uh, devoted myself to the concept that God was omnipresent. He was always with me. And so my theology quickly informed me, God's been with you the whole evening watching. And I thought, I wonder if he had his arms folded waiting for me to say something, or if he's been uh, just, he's really ticked because I haven't been uh, conversant. And then I, uh, but I'd been going to a church, a Baptist church in La Cucina, where a great teacher quoted from a book by Ruth Harms Calkin. Uh, and the name of the book was, Tell Me Again, Lord, I Forget. And the quote was, Lord loving me and knowing me as you do. You know so well that when I need you most, I seek you least. And I thought, well, God knows that about me, that I'm not always capable of being spiritual. But he died for me, and my, when I was in sin, he, when he was on the cross, I was not yet born, but I would be a sinner and wouldn't do the right things. And when I screw up, he forgives me. I don't think he's probably mad at me right now. I think he thinks the night went well. And without mentioning him, I think he was with me the whole night and helping things go well. And I get some proof of that if I read the book of Esther. Did you know that there's a book in the Bible, a whole book and a great story that not once mentions God or prayer or anything religious? Fasting was a semi-religious thing, but people that are atheists fast. And, uh, you know, at any rate, but the clear message of the book of Esther is God is watching over his people and make the right things happen at the right time and saving his people. And so I got that feeling, and then I started thinking about uh, Jesus saying, I'm a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And that was the night, uh, I just as I was driving up my driveway, that my relationship with uh, God, it began with wisdom because the Bible says the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. But I moved, uh, in addition to the fear that I, would all, I have to this day for doing things intentionally wrong and getting God ticked off, uh, I now have a new concept, that God is clearly my best friend. 
and nobody loves me any more than he does. He's my father, and Jesus is my uh, savior and my Lord. The Holy Spirit is comforted. I can grieve him and make him sad about my behavior, but he doesn't start hating me. But that is the night that I moved it up a notch and went from fear of the Lord, which I still have, to thankfulness that we're close friends, now and always, and we'll get past these moments when I stray away for a second, only to come back after I've repented at the right time, um, probably not soon enough for him, <laughs> and, and surely not soon enough for me. But I highly re recommend a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, not one that's just a fearful relationship on uh, things you do or don't do and how God feels about it, but one uh, that's based on what he did for you and uh, how much grace he's anxious to show you if you'll just acknowledge the fact that he's full of grace for we are saved by grace through faith and that faith is not of our own selves. It's a gift of God that he gives to anyone who asks. So go home knowing God's on your side and uh, let me close with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for that night with that errant monkey who... Uh, probably should never have been captured and sold to somebody that didn't know what they were doing. And uh, I'm uh, thankful that that all went well, and I'm thankful for that day and that night because it took our relationship up a notch, and now we're close friends instead of just being relationship buddies and, and uh, from a distance. But I thank you that you can be known closely, like Paul said, that I may know him and be, be really familiar with the fellowship of his sufferings, be made conformable to his death. And um, so I, I want even more, because I still have a little bit more time, don't know how much, but more time I want to know you better and uh, serve you more and enjoy the thought that you may be more pleased with how I serve you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Well, thank you, Gary. If you want to hear more of those stories, listen to the first service or come and check out my view from the zoo books because you will be entertained and inspired.